welcome to the Singing for Health Network podcast. My name is Ruth Routledge and I am a Singing for Health practitioner and researcher. I'm a singer, I'm a choir leader and facilitator and uh, fascinated by all things Singing for Health. And I'm delighted to welcome today Deborah Aloba, who is a singing teacher, a vocal coach, who specialises in teaching students with dyslexia and other neurodiverse issues. Hello, Deborah. Hello. Lovely to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Lovely to be here. Would you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Right, so my name is Deborah, as you've said, and I teach singing. I love teaching singing and coaching students. But my specialism is with adults and children who suffer with dyslexia. So a few years ago, before I started at my master's, I met a young woman who came to me. I had been told she had dyslexia. That was absolutely fine. I did some research, a little bit of research. I was a bit irritated because I couldn't find anything. Mm. Nothing just came up. And I just thought, oh, this isn't great. But anyway, I managed to find a little bit. And I made sure that when she came, everything was really big. So, you know, because there's several sorts of dyslexia, which I'll come to in a minute. So I had everything prepared for her. She came into my studio. I think I'm a relatively warm person and I don't really put any pressure on my students. <laughs> and she, she began to sing and she began to shake. Oh my gosh. And, and I'm sort of, oh, you know. So the more I said, oh, well, should we look at this song? The more she shook. And, and then she started saying, I can't do it. I'm stupid. I can't do it. I'm stupid. Now that really upset me. Mm. That really, really upset me. So I said, you're not stupid. I said, you have a beautiful voice because she did. You know, we just have to find another way of teaching you. So I went to try and be still. And she, she wouldn't. I mean, she just got oh. herself more more wound up. Yeah. Luckily, her mom was there. So I, I did manage to sort of, you know, calm her down eventually. And I said, I sat her down. I said, look, everybody learns in a different way. And we just have to find the way that you learn best. That started a journey between her and myself because she became a student but she also became part of the research that I did in mm. respect of studying how to teach dyslexic students how to read and write music and how to teach them to sing so that's how it started so I'm based in Essex but I also have a studio in London yeah. and so that's what I did. Wow so do you only teach people with dyslexia and neurological Not conditions or no right across the spectrum I have students from I think my youngest at the moment is seven up until just got an 82 and 86 year old wow that sounds fantastic that sounds really really interesting and actually i expect relevant to everyone working either teaching or i mean i mainly lead groups and choirs but that sort of thing does come up and it seems to me as though good teaching practice as it relates to different people different health conditions different neurodiversity issues it's good practice for everyone i don't know what you think i think you have to be aware that 10 to 20 percent of the population have this dyslexia wow now if you if you add on top of that the percentage of people who have autism yeah and the percentage of people who have apd which is auditory processing disorder which is well what is that i think a very difficult condition so as we're talking there is mm. sounds going on around us but because we're talking to each other we can filter those sounds out so even though i can hear the heating sort of slightly humming and i can hear different things in the room I can filter that out and concentrate on the conversation I'm having with you somebody who suffers with APD cannot filter I so see. all the sounds coming at once now you imagine that for a singer or musician and Nightmare. there is no cure wow. there are things that you can do 
but there is no actual cure. So when you consider that, I think it's, it's about 5% of the population has APD, wow. 10 to 20% of the population who has dyslexia. Now, dyslexia and APD can be co-conditions, but they can also be individual. Mm. So that is a lot of people. That's one in every five students that you're going to meet who potentially, yes. potentially could have a problem. Now, if you add that on to the fact that there are people who suffer from trauma as well, so who also cannot process information in an easy way, because if you're neglected as a child, if you are abused, especially in childhood, certain sections of your brains don't develop. Yeah. So if you consider those on top of that, I would say, I mean, I don't know, this is just my estimate, it's nothing mm. I've read. A third of the people we deal with more than mm. likely have some sort of issue. Yeah, with, with a lot of these things as well, I, I think they're quite underdiagnosed, aren't they? Um, Very. Would you now lead me in a practical exercise and talk me through what you would do? Well, first of all, I would have to assess what sort of dyslexia you had, mm. because there are various different sorts. So first of all, I would have to assess whether you were somebody who had visual stress or you had phonological processing issues. So right. those are tend to be the two main ones. So visual stress is when mm. you look at words or you look at notes and they blur, they can float off the page, right. they can move around, so you can't see them clearly. The first thing I would do is I would turn around and say to the parent of a student, have you had your child assessed? You know, if they don't come to me and they haven't told me they're dyslexic, but I realise there's a problem and I've done a little bit of individual work on them and I've assessed that there's a problem, that I would say, do you think there might be a possibility? You've got to be very careful how you mm. do it. Very careful how you do it. But if a student has been assessed, then you, then I just say to the parent, can I have their statement, please? Now, that right. statement right. sets out clearly for me what issues that child has and I yes. can immediately hone in and start the work. Mm. Now, if, it, if it's visual stress, there are certain things that we can do and very simple things. So the first thing I would do immediately put everything up into A3, make right. it very big. And I would also, having put it all up on A3, I'd have about eight different colours. So white, yellow, pink, blue, green, purple, and different shades of green. And I would take the child through each one of those with the music score on the you know, on it in black uh, initially, making sure that the notes, the music is on coloured paper. Right. Okay. All right. So sometimes yeah. it's as simple as that. So I would then turn around and say, when you look at one of these, do you find it easier to read? And it's amazing. So you'll flick the yellow, you'll flick the pink, you'll flick the red, you'll flick the green. Oh my gosh, I can see it. It's really amazing. Wow. So just with that one small thing, yeah. you will have resolved a visual stress problem. Wow. Now, you can use filters as well. Mm. Now, with filters, there's an argument going on about at the mm. moment about whether filters work. My view is you should at least try because even though the science isn't firm, what does it hurt yes. to try if it works for the child, yes. if it works for the adult? Does it matter? So I try everything. Now, when I'm teaching children music, I put everything on screen for them. The screens are great. I use coloured notes. Right. Because if, if everything blurs, if they see the coloured notes and you make sure that you use the same yeah. colour for the same note wherever it is on the stave. Does now, that help? Again, with visual stress. With visual stress, because, mm, you know, even if the line's a little bit blurry, they can kind of work out which note this is. Mm. Sometimes I will use coloured staves because sometimes black is just too much. So the colours that have been found to be most effective for dyslexics are a yellow background, 
blue wording, but also grey background, red wording. Right. So these are found to be very, very effective. But again, I have several of these all set out when they come and I hand each one to them and I say, which one do you feel is best for you? Now, sometimes it'll be none of them and sometimes it'll be like oh, that one. Mm. So yeah. it's, an, it's another way. Now, with somebody with deep dyslexia and, I, and the young lady I was talking about had deep dyslexia, I had to do everything. So I had to, the bass and the treble clef had, were coloured. Yeah. So all this, yeah. so I put everything, she had a 65 inch television, which was very useful because everything I put up was on the television, <clears throat> which made everything very big for her. So she could see very clearly there was little less chance of things blurring. Right. It does take more work putting all this stuff up and having to do all this, yes. but it's so worth it when yeah. you literally see their blood pressure just go right down. Yeah. Honestly, I cannot tell you the joy that gives me. You're providing a way in. So much of our world is visual and particularly in a learning environment, everything is written on the board or look at this page in your book or here's a worksheet. So much is visual that if that is a stressful experience that you can't access, it must be incredibly stressful and difficult and alienating and confidence destroying and, you know, so many negative okay. things. That's exactly what was happening with this young woman. Yeah. So um, so with deep dyslexia, I might have to do the lines. I mean, now what now what is really important is you discuss it with the student. Yeah. It's, it's not about you. It's about them. Mm. And it's about what works for them. Mm. So I'll turn around and I'll say, look, do you think this, how about this color? They'll go, yes, 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 that color works. I'll go, fine. So is there anything else? And they might say, well, if it was a little bit brighter, if it was a little bit darker, or we'll experiment. So it's their decision. They're in control of it. Yes. Which is yes. very, very important for them because yes. they know what is best for them. Mm. I, I'm not the person who has dyslexia. Right. I yes. have an idea of what works for them. I can provide a way of what might work for them. So then there's phonological processing. Phonological now, processing. processing. Sorry. <laughs> so the brain of a dyslexic person is completely different to the brain of a quote, normal person. So because part of the brain of the dyslexic is not fully developed or not developed in the same way. So when it comes to phonological processing, Would you, you can just tell us what that is. So if I sing summertime and the living is easy, you can more than likely sing that back to me without any problems. Yes. But if somebody who has problems with phonological processing, they might get to summertime and then they can't remember the living is easy. Now that as a singer is a very difficult position to be in. They may have no problems with their visual understanding of words or whatever, but they cannot remember literally what they've read a second ago. Now you imagine how difficult that is. So you take your, you're taking in information yeah. for an exam or something, yeah. but you can't actually remember the beginning of what you've learned. So if you're teaching somebody a song, and at the moment I'm teaching a young woman, Haydn Roseline, Roseline, sorry, and um, Schubert, because she needs to do a German piece for a mm. BRSM exam. I wanted her to, to know that she could learn this. And this is really difficult for her. But the thing with dyslexics is what you have to understand is they are amazing. The way they learn, the way they are, the way they take in information. Once they've learned it, they have learned it forever. So you've got to be careful that you teach them correctly. <laughs> yeah. So what I have done with her is I have taken the song and her vision is perfect. I've gone through it as much as I can and I have created images where I can. So rose line, rose line, rose line, uh, rot. So I have a rose and a line, a rose and a line, a rose and a line, and then an apple rotting. Now, obviously, 
she's going to go rose line, rose line, rose line. But what I do is as she's doing that, I'm going rose line, rose line, rose line. As so in with your hand the, gesture, yes. do you mean? So, right. as a yeah. rose line. so I'm just changing it slightly. So I'm changing the right. O. So she quickly picks up on the fact that rose line is rose line. Yes, so it's not a, it's not an absolute yeah. rose. Yeah, yeah it's an rose line. Rose. That's the nearest thing I can get to what it looks like. Mm. And then rose line in der Heiden. So in, she cannot do that. Dare, I put down as dare, D-A-R-E. Right. Not D-E-R, D-A-R-E. And then hide, I do somebody hiding behind right. the tree. Okay. I do an image. Yeah. Because when you're yeah. dealing with people with phonological processing, and this is the science, the science says that the best way to teach someone with dyslexia is to use visual, auditory and kinesthetic. You have to use all three together. Oh, I see. Yeah. You can't just use one. I see. I believe that's what teachers are supposed to do, making sure they cover those boxes, visual, auditory and kinesthetic, whether it happens. <laughs> but it's mm. even more important. Now, take, for example, recently, we had to learn notes because obviously she has got to learn how to sight sing and she also has to learn how to write music for exams. So she can read and write perfectly, but it's yeah. the memory. So I what see. I do, I create big, thick notes made out of felt so she can touch them. Number one, she sees it's black. And when she touches it, that note is full. It's solid. So it's right. a solid black note. So she immediately knows that's going to be a crotchet or a quaver. So then obviously I have a felt tail. So then right. what I do is I'll put that on the ground. I'll put yeah. eight of them on the ground and I'll say, right, we now have eight crotchets now i need you to make them into eight quavers mm. so she has to take the tail put it onto what was the crotchet right so it's very kinesthetic so now mm. she knows and visual notes, so visual and i'm also telling her at the same time auditory. Mm. and i also i play the notes for her as well so i'll play each note a crotchet and it's in a beat and i will get her to stamp one two three four five six seven eight and then when we do quavers I'll get her to one and two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight. So she realizes it's, it's faster movement. So mm. all those things are done together as I teach her this process. Right. Now, when we look at a minimum, we do exactly the same thing. Mm. Nice, big, fat note. I should have brought them really to show you. And then she can feel it. Yeah. But the most important thing, she sees that it's white. So she feels it. She knows it's white. We put it down. And I then turn around and explain that that is two crotchets make the value of one minimum. So then I will put, let's say, again, eight crotchets. And I'll put a pile of minims and a pile of quavers and a pile of crotchets. And I'll say, right, how many crotchets make a minimum? So it's a very, you know, kinesthetic mm. way of uh, learning. With a lot of dyslexics, they find it really hard. And what they'll do is they'll flip the note the wrong way around. And oh. this is why it's so vital that you have this kinesthetic quality to when you teach. So there's several things you can do there. So first of all, I get them to trace notes. Right. So I get right. them to trace. Because all the science proves that if you continually repeat an action, that that part of the brain, which isn't functioning... Because the brain has plasticity, it will, after a while, accommodate. It will adapt. So so this is really, really vital. So I get them to trace, 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 trace. And try to make everything into a game as well. And the other thing that is incredibly important is you have to be encouraging. You have, you have to be patient. 
And every little bit of progress that is made, which may seem very minor, you make a big fuss about. So this weekend, I've got my little girl and we're learning just Schubert song. And I have created pages of her words, but they are phonetic. But where I can, I've used an image. She looks at it and she literally you know, can just follow it. So and we, we do it in time to start off with. So she then, at one point... She managed the first four or five words. There was eight, nine words on the page. So she managed the first five. And then she she stumbled. I can't do it. I said, excuse me. What do you mean you can't do it? You've just done five of the words. I said, what can't you do? But what about the five before? I said, aren't those five words important? But, but I said, I am not willing to hear the word can't. I am not hear, willing to hear the word don't. I said, you have just done five words correctly. You have never seen this before. So now we'll do it again. So we go through very carefully. I go through it mm. with her. And then I get her to do it again. And this time she gets eight words right. But she meant Mrs. One. I missed one. I said, and how many did you not miss? Yeah. So so she looks at me. Oh, um, eight. Mm. Because it's nine words. I said, so what proportion do we have for the words you got right and the words you didn't get right? I mean, Mm. I say it all with humour, but it's so important to credit when they've managed to do something right. Yes. And I tend to find that dyslexics are very hardworking. They want to get it right. Mm. So if you make it fun and if you're encouraging, they will do virtually anything for you. But there's a couple of other things. When you bring them into your studio, don't have a lot of stuff around you. You know, don't have a lot of (laughs) knickknacks. They'll be, what's that, miss? Oh, what's that? What's that? They really like to distract. Mm. So you've got to keep them quite focused as well. And if you do have things in your studio, make sure it's all music. So make music notes, music pictures, music this. So everything is related to music because <laughs> their concentration span, depending on how bad the phonological processing is, can right. be really quite short. So you have to take all that into consideration when you're working with them. What I'm finding really, really interesting about a lot of this, so I don't know very much about dyslexia myself. My daughter, who is 12, has ADHD and ASD. And a lot of what you're talking about is just reminding me hugely of her, particularly this phonological processing, the being distracted by things, um, struggling to focus, focusing on the negatives rather than the positives. So you're, you're talking about specifically about dyslexia what about other neurodiverse issues i have students with autism as well now we have to first of all you have to establish the sort of autism it is because you have high function autism and you have autism which isn't as high now high function autism is much easier to work with Mm. um it, it just is but people with autism have a very structured way of working and it can be difficult but it can be very very useful to have somebody who has a very structured way of working What you have to understand with someone with autism and somebody with dyslexia is they would take you literally. So you have to be really careful what you say to both of them. (laughs) Ah, no pressure. Exactly. And talk to me a little bit about research and practice and how you have put the two together. Well, when I started my master's, as I said, when I first met my young student, um, I was desperately wanted to find out how to help her. And I went hither, thither and yon and couldn't find nothing in one place. It just almost drove me mad. So I began researching. And do you know what? There really wasn't that much research on it. Is this specifically on dyslexia and music? Yes, there really wasn't that much. It's really actually only been acknowledged since 1980 that there is a problem. So even though dyslexia has been acknowledged for 100 years, where music is concerned, 
concerned is called dysmusia. Right. And that that was only a word that came into being in the 1980s. Oh, wow. Gosh, um, isn't that extraordinary? There was very little research that I could find. There was um, some fabulous work by Sheila Oglethorpe. So she put together a book which was great for instrumentalists, mm. but couldn't actually find anything for singers. There were some articles about how to help the singing students. So I collated all the information I did find and I created my own book. <laughs> but all the information was just in one place. Whether it's music or whether it's writing, it's much of a muchness. Right. So... I looked at the visual, auditory and kinesthetic work that had been done. With respect to just normal um, text and... Yeah, just normal text and then just applied it. There was loads of stuff on visual stress, but each thing was separate, which I found bizarre. So they would talk about colour filters or they would talk about colour paper or they would talk about enlarging it, but none of it was together because they would have studied one little aspect. Yes. So I put it all together. The other thing I looked at is the reasons for dyslexia. So one of them is the phonological processing I spoke to you about. Another one is to do with the magnocellular and that the way our eye operates. So there's something missing that the grey matter isn't as developed. So there was that. The other thing that it's believed to be is a cerebellar problem. But nobody can agree as to what causes dyslexia. Right. So at any one time, one will sort of take precedence over the other. So, So the cerebellum is heavily involved in the eye movement, which right. is why they think that that might be the cause. So they still can't work out what is going on for definite, even though they've been studying this for 100 years and they still can't work out exactly what's going on. So, you know, it, no, it's really, really, really fascinating. And even though you know, my head almost explodes with all the scientific terms, I yes. do love it at, yeah. at the same time. And also, it's so lovely to be able to say to somebody, the reason that this that you have this is because of this it's not because you're silly it's not because you're not clever it's because of this yeah and you know people always feel a little bit better when they know the reason for something and once that they know it actually settles them down a little bit you know because it's not my fault i'm not being stupid this is a medical condition yeah it's just my brain is different my brain brain functions differently and processes information differently to the way the world is sort of organized and the way information tends to be organized but then when you turn around and say to them, do you realise that Einstein was a dyslexic? Do you realise that Richard Branson was a dyslexic? When you go through all these famous people who have done amazing things, that's a whole new thing because yeah. that suddenly they can own that. Yeah. And that makes it a completely different ball game. Yeah. So in fact, is, the research it, is really empowering for people. Perhaps. What I actually have on my studio wall is pictures of brains blown up. So that when somebody comes in and I turn around and say, no, that's my brain and that's your brain. And I can try to explain to them a little bit what the difference is and then I try and say so that's why dyslexics tend to be very creative they're just very clever in a different way mm-hmm. so once you explain that it is empowering mm-hmm. and I love to see their faces you know even the faces of adults who've struggled with this for many years it's like watching the scales come off of someone's eyes Aww. and it's really funny because people turn around and they'll say to them well you're dyslexic well, what what is that what does that mean actually it means that I struggle with reading and writing so I get very frustrated because tell people why once they understand they have a different approach to it yes so you've written a book and put everything that you've learned into one place how would you like to envision the future 
of your work or this particular area? What I find frustrating is, as I said, there's 10 to 20% of people who have dyslexia. One of the things that I don't think people necessarily get is that a lot of that is hereditary. So you'll actually find that it goes back generations. Just to say as well, Hereditary is not the same as genetic, is it? No. So this is something that parents will have, grandparents will have, and great-grandparents will have had. What you can find is that a grandparent or parent, having found a way of getting around with this, will almost deny the fact that their child has this condition. Oh, right. Sometimes, because they've managed it. So why can't anybody else? You know, why I should their see. child be any different? Yeah. Which is understandable, in a sense. So sometimes when you're looking at people with this condition, you need to sort of also look at the parents. Is there a hereditary line there? Because if this child has it, it's highly likely that a sibling will have it as well. The other thing that a lot of people also need to look at is what happens at birth. Now, this is just me. I've not managed to do a study on this and I've not managed oh. to do a lot of research on this. This is just something I have noted. Some of the students I have have either had a traumatic birth or as a child, they've had problems with grommets in their ears. Oh, right. Gosh, how interesting. I have no actual research on this. And this is just something that I've noted by the students that have come to me. This is not any research yes. I've done. This is just something I have observed in the students I have taught. So is the idea with this as a sort of avenue for future research to understand the causes of dyslexia. What I would like to see in schools and in the workplace is a greater understanding and really what I'm looking at from is a musical point of view. Yeah. So from choir masters, yeah. from the band members, from the point of view of anybody involved in music, it's very easy to reject somebody because well they're not picking it up quickly enough mm. or they can't quite get the note. Now that to me is unfair. I know it's difficult when you have a choir of 30 or 40 people and you know there's a couple and they're just not quite keeping up but the fact of the matter is if you just adapt very slightly or if you turn around and say I tell you what let me just send you the music a week in advance and can I just suggest you do this yeah. you know would it help you if I did that number one you'd find somebody who was so committed they would just love it and number two you would find somebody who having taught them the auto line they would never forget it because that's the way dyslexic are once they remember something they remember it mm. so it's so short-sighted when somebody comes in who it's not so easy to, for want of a better word, teach, to not take a little bit of time. So for me, because we're looking at potentially a third, between a fifth and a third of people who, if they come into a choir, come into a band, come into any musical situation, could be rejected. Now, what mm -hmm. a sad loss. Yeah, absolutely. And so all your notes, your felt notes and your different coloured paper and things like that, did you make those? Did you buy them? You can buy some of them online. I make, um, they're very simple to make. I was going to try to sort of put packages together, but it became a bit complicated. Wood ones are very useful as well. So if you know anybody who's clever with a, I think it's a jigsaw. Jigsaw, yes. <laughs> yeah, then they can create the notes. You just get a piece of black felt, a piece of white felt, a bit of cardboard. They don't have to be chunky like mine. Mm. They just have to be something that they can feel. Yeah. So just cut it out, put it on cardboard, cut around the cardboard, stick it on both sides. It will take a little bit of time, but it's mm. worth it. Honestly, it is. The filters you can get online, nine ninety nine. When it comes to helping them to write, there are special pens that you can purchase. We can ask their parents to purchase or they can purchase themselves. You can also, when they take their exams, they're allowed extra time. You need to mm. inform the examiner. You can even, I mean, I've even sort of said to the examiner, they can't write on white paper. They have to have yellow paper or whatever right, it is. Right, right. So to really and, specify you know, the needs. Yeah. And most of the time, they're really quite good. You have to prepare the student. 
really prepare them. So what I'll do in the middle of something, you know, they'll be happily singing along and I will suddenly clap or I'll suddenly run around or I'll suddenly scream. Yeah, because anything that puts them off will affect the memory. If it's a phenomenal processing matter, it's going to break the way they've remembered it. So you have to make sure that they are prepared for that. Yeah. Because it's an unusual situation, especially for autistic students. Now with autistic students, you need to take them to where they're having their exam. You take them on the journey at least twice and all the way through you're explaining to them now we're going to the exam and we're going to pass this tree and then we're going to pass this road and then we're going to come in here and we're going to go up these steps and then look at the room and look mm. at the windows and you must familiarize them with the space and if you ring up the um, exam center and explain they're normally very very good but mm. you have to familiarize themselves because otherwise you just have a mess on your hands mm. because they're out of their routine. They're out of what they understand. They're out, they're out of their structure and they become agitated. Yeah. So none of that has to happen. You just have to think ahead. And I know that can be sometimes a little bit of hard work. But when you see that student pass their exam, honestly, yeah. it's worth everything. And when you see their face and yeah. the sheer, I did it, then oh. everything's worth it. Yeah. Everything oh, is worth it. That sounds amazing. Deborah. thank you. Thank you so, so much for joining us loads of really useful things for teachers anyone working in music and working with everyone in all our glory with our different needs and our different brains and the adjustments you can make that's really inspiring thank you very much thank you so much for asking me to do it <laughs>